0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
1: Like much of the globe, British politics was enthralled by Meghan and Harry's bombshell interview this week, which raised some very troubling questions for the royal family.
2: So we have in tandem the conversation of he won't be given security. He's not going to be given a title and also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born.
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. Today, we'll be looking at the political and constitutional implications of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's TV interview with Oprah Winfrey about their troubles with the royal family, particularly the accusations of racism regarding their son Archie, uncaring treatment, and how politicians and the British public are feeling about them. Chief Political Commentator Robert Shrimsley and Political Correspondent Jasmine Cameron Celesi will be discussing, along with special guest Catherine Haddon from the Institute of Government think tank. And later, we'll be looking at the question of what is global Britain? The Johnson government will publish its integrated review into foreign policy next week, but will it add substance to the rhetoric about Britain and its place in the world after Brexit? Political editor George Parker will be discussing with Robert. So Robert and Jasmine, welcome back to the podcast. And Catherine, welcome. Hi there, Seb. Hi. Hi. So just before we get into this main topic about the Royal Family's political implications, I have to ask each of you briefly, what did you actually make of the interview? Robert, what was your feeling after having watched it? Or did you not watch it? I did watch it. And I say this without
3: wishing to diminish what Megan said, but the things I felt most strongly watching the interview was you just felt the intense drama and this continued tension between the personal and the constitutional, particularly with the component of the interview where Prince Harry joined it, my sense was that essentially we are still feeling the aftershocks of the death of Princess Diana and that this is a continuation of that same trauma that has hit the royal family since just before the turn of
1: the century. And Jasmine, what was your initial reaction?
2: I was very surprised by how open and how blunt they were. They certainly didn't hold back and, you know, we're used to the royals being very controlled, being very um, almost impersonal sometimes. But, you know, I found it on the whole incredibly sad hearing someone explain their struggles with mental health, their their experiences of racism. You know, it didn't make for easy viewing.
1: No, and I think my view was that the whole thing was whatever you think of the content, amazingly compelling television. I watched live over a two hour period and I just couldn't take my eyes away from it. The way it was done, the way it was presented really did draw you in. And before we get on to the main discussion, Kath, what did you make of it?
4: Well, I kind of agree with Jasmine. And on the one level, it was just incredibly sad. Um, you know, all of the troubles that they've had, this sort of family breakdown. As you say, this is something that goes back decades in terms of various family problems. But yes, also quite extraordinary that that then is played out so publicly and they're shining such a light into that sort of family dynamic. But as we're going to discuss, it's also the huge ramifications
1: that it has. Well, let's get into those right now. Handling controversies with the royal family is one of the toughest jobs for any prime minister. The clamour for any kind of comment is great, yet number 10's rule is generally to say nothing because once the door is open on commenting on their private matters, it is very hard to close it. Boris Johnson mostly adopted this approach with regards to Meghan and Harry this week. The Prime Minister did not comment on the accusations of racism or about a careless attitude towards the couple's well-being, but he did appear to side more towards the Queen in this debate where everybody seems to have an opinion. And perhaps the,
3: the best thing I can say is that I've always had the highest admiration for the Queen and the unifying role that she plays in our country and across the commonwealth and as for uh, the rest all other matters to do with the royal family uh, i've spent a long time uh, now
1: not uh, commenting on uh, royal family matters so robert Boris Johnson there just trying to shy away from this whole debate, which has dominated the media and the papers throughout this week. Even the FT editorial board got involved in the debate about Meghan and Harry. Do you think this line can hold because this accusation that the Duchess of Sussex put forward about racism is a very, very strong one and one that could really harm the family in the future?
3: well, I think that we we'll have to unpack the two different things. My feeling about what's happened in terms, if one looks at it coldly from the point of view of the constitution, the future of the monarchy, the politics of this, is that what we're seeing is an institutional crisis rather than a constitutional crisis. This is a problem within the structure of the family. It's often referred to as the firm. We're talking about a family business here, and that's so hard to disentangle the working and the employment part of it from the personal. And they're obviously absolutely disastrously bad at bringing new people into the Family, But I think it's also very striking that there's been a massive political as well as an age split in the way people have responded to this interview. And broadly speaking, the Conservative Party and the older generation have tended to side with the Queen and the royal family. And the younger and more progressive-minded people have veered towards the Meghan side of the argument, which obviously points to the possibility of storing up a lot of problems for the future of the royal family if it doesn't get its response right. And I do think a fundamental problem for the royal family as this goes forward is that this is a family that looks very, very old and remote. It is led by somebody in their nineties. She's going to be succeeded by somebody in his seventies. But I also think we need to be a little bit careful about seeing these flare ups as being more constitutionally significant than they may necessarily be. I think it is a problem for the nature of the institution, which they are going to have to tackle and find ways to reach back to the people they've
1: lost because of what Megan has said about them. Well, Kat, having seen what's played out this week, some newspapers have said it's the biggest crisis facing the royal family in 85 years, which may be perhaps overplaying it slightly. But there are parallels being drawn here with what happened to the Princess of Wales in 1997, where Downing Street felt the palace had got the response wrong here. And as I think in the 2006 film, The Queen, it was very much documented how Tony Blair was trying to Push the royal family in a certain direction to change their historic ways of doing things. And eventually they did, but much damage was done to the institution. Do you think this is a similar moment or is it different?
4: There are a lot of the same trends going on here, a lot of the same issues. And as we were discussing before, that's part of why it's resonating so much as it's got those echoes of the Diana years I agree with Robert that it isn't at the moment a constitutional crisis. This is an institutional crisis. This is a PR crisis. This is a family crisis. But I do think it has the potential to add to concerns that might end up where we're challenging parts of the Constitution. Because now we are much closer to the likely succession happening in the next few years. We can't deny the fact that the Queen is in her 90s. We hope that she will continue on but ultimately the palace has to be starting to plan for that and that was already a tricky thing for prince charles to navigate you know he's being trying to rehabilitate his image not just obviously over diana but also things like the degree to which he would intervene more politically express more opinions whether he would be a different monarch he's been thinking about how to modernize the monarchy in his own way The question is how much this is going to add to some of that, whether or not some of the blame is going to end up falling on Prince Charles and whether or not it's therefore going to challenge whether he can really succeed the Queen in a way that carries through some of the continued support that is out there for the monarchy or whether or not we're going to start questioning it more deeply. And that's going to have an effect not just on the monarchy, whether it exists in this country, but the Commonwealth, but also parts of our constitution that are actually quite tricky and really need you know, a lot of trust in the monarch to be able to work
1: properly. Well, Jasmine, let's have a look at that question of trust, because you've been out and about this week speaking to people across the country to get their sense of how the interview has landed and how it's affected their views of the monarchy. And did you find this, Robert mentioned in the beginning, this age divide that appears to have happened about whether people were more on the side of Harry and Meghan of this or of the royal family?
2: I think there's definitely a very striking generational divide and YouGov have actually done some polling on this where they showed that nearly half of all of those aged between 18 and 24 felt more sympathy towards Harry and Meghan. Now, this makes sense. So I'm 25 and I was, I think I was around two years old when Diana died. So I recognise it was a huge event in British history, but I don't have any personal memory to that event. And so if you're, you know, under 30, Your big royal events are the weddings of Kate and William, Harry and Meghan, and your big quote-unquote royal scandals were the Prince Andrew allegations and now this. And that all obviously dictates the light you see the royals in. And I think younger people in general are more comfortable having discussions about mental health and things like race. We're more comfortable sharing our lives on social media and being quite open so I can imagine that for older viewers, especially the more traditional ones, they may have thought that it might have been quite vulgar Two members of the royal family spilling all the tea on to an American talk show host. And I think the generational divides really highlighted that actually where you sit on some of these big issues like Brexit, racism, mental health, sexual harassment is more likely to be determined by your age than anything else. There's
4: an age-old quote that people have been putting around this week from Walter Badgett saying that you shouldn't let daylight in on the magic when it comes to the monarchy. And it is weird that that's the philosophy they're still going with. They don't speak about these things. We've seen a very tight-lipped response. Prince William has made a comment about how his family is very much not a racist family. They put out a statement. But by and large, they're still very uncomfortable talking about this in public. And that's part of the problem they've got in how they respond to this, because if it were just an institution and not a family that has that long tradition of trying to keep some of these problems inside, you'd see sort of accountability mechanisms kick in that allow you to try and mitigate some of the fallout to try and show that you're going to self-examine, investigate yourselves, take action if needed, but also push back if actually it shows that, no, we're in a good place, we disagree with some of this, et cetera.
3: I just wanted to come back to one thing that Jasmine said, which I thought was a really important point, which is when she mentioned Prince Andrew. And I do think that actually almost a bigger problem for the royal family is the Prince Andrew affair, which I don't think is over. And I think when that comes back in, and I think it will, on top of what's happened now, the image that people have of the way the royal family conducts itself is going to be even more desperately tarnished. And I think that's when this could become more problematic.
2: Reflecting upon all of this, I think there's been a real missed opportunity by the monarchy. You know, they could have taken a very clear stance on racism. This could have been a really important turning point. Watching the interview, I couldn't help but think back to the wedding of Harry and Meghan and how, you know, there was talk that it signalled that the monarchy would be more diverse and more modern. And knowing what we all know now, that seems incredibly naive. You know, you can't change an institution that seems to be quite stuck in its ways. But the response from the palace earlier this week saying that the issues raised by Harry and Meghan regarding race were concerning, would be taken seriously, but ultimately it was a private matter, seemed quite strange to me, especially when you contrast that with the statement put out by the palace when Meghan was accused of bullying. They said they didn't tolerate bullying and would launch an investigation. And the wording was much stronger, clearly showing that when the palace wants to, it can take a firm stance on the issue. And I think at the moment, the UK is navigating the sort of post-George Floyd era where businesses, newspapers, schools are all having to confront issues of race. And the royal family should be a part of that conversation, especially considering its history and its links to colonialism. And so we're in this awkward position where the royals aren't trying to validate or confirm the allegations of racism, but they're also trying to get the message out that they're anti-racist, as we saw with William's statement earlier in the week.
1: Well, I think one person who, again, weighed into this debate was Keir Starmer, the opposition leader, and he went a bit further than Boris Johnson when he spoke to the BBC about that interview.
3: Well, they're serious um, allegations, and we'll have to see how um, the institution reacts uh, to this. It's bigger, in a sense, than just the royal family because, you know, that experience of racism, I'm sad to say, is too prevalent still in 21st
1: century Britain. So, Robert, if I could just pick you up on this issue you mentioned earlier about the political divide here that I'm, I saw Zach Goldsmith, who is a foreign office minister and a close ally of Boris Johnson, he came out and accused Harry of destroying the royal family over this. And there's been many conservative MPs on radio, TV, and the like who have, again, really much sided with the institution, with the Queen there. You could say maybe it's because by the party's nature. It wants to conserve institutions and is always going to start with the establishment orthodoxy. But there is that feeling that it does play a bit into the culture wars. And it feels to me as if they know where their voting base will feel about this and side with the Queen over this interview.
3: I think that's true. I think they do know where they assume their base will be and they're probably right about it. I don't doubt that this is what they believe, by the way. I don't think they're being insincere in the positions they're taking. I think there's a secondary layer here, which is that, Let's assume that the royal family doesn't intend to be racist, didn't intend to behave in a way that Meghan found to be racist. Then you come to this issue of unconscious prejudice or unintentional prejudice, and a very interesting dividing line between the political parties because there are senior figures in the Conservative Party who hate the idea of institutional racism or unconscious bias. They resist the whole notion of it. They dismiss it as part of the woke agenda. But actually, if you take that notion seriously, which the Labour Party does... Then you say, well, look, it's easy to see how this happened. They didn't intend to be racist towards her, but they can't help themselves. There are decades-old attitudes and, and approaches which just come out. And of course, the problem is, if you, as someone of a minority group, feel prejudice around you, it's very hard to unfeel it. Therefore, this goes to also bigger critique of society in which the Labour Party believes in the notion of institutional prejudice and unconscious bias and believes this is something you have to tackle. And the Conservative Party bridles at that idea and is on the defensive against the notion of it, and on the offensive against those who believe it. So I think this
1: plays to a deeper difference between the two critiques they have of society. But Jasmine, this is definitely something we've seen, not just on this interview, but on wider issues about inequality and ethnicity the government has been tackling. Because I think if you look at this stance of the Equalities Minister, Kemi Badenov, for example, she's someone who is very much challenging in taking on the Labour Party's view on this and it's obviously one that some people agree with but it's also a controversial one as well.
2: I think that's correct and in some ways I think Starmer's in a more tricky position than the Conservatives because he is trying to convince black and ethnic minority voters that he is someone who can take a firm stance on racism and injustices in society you know and within his party as well at the same time he doesn't really want to irritate Voters, especially in red wall seats, who might be um, more in support of, say, the Queen or the monarchy. And I think we're going to see this tension continue to play out as the Labour Party continues to rebuild its coalition of voters.
1: And finally, Kath, obviously every time you get a situation like this, the conversation turns to, is this going to be the end of the monarchy? There was some polling done this week that showed an uptick in support for ending the monarchy, particularly younger voters. And I guess this does pose big questions. As you said, there is going to be a transfer of power from the Queen to the Prince of Wales in the coming years. And when that does happen, it will be a big reflective moment for the whole institution. And we know that Harry and Meghan were part of the Prince of Wales's plan to slim down the monarchy to reduce the number of people who are getting frontline roles. The fact that they moved to America has sort of upended those plans, certainly. But when it's within the UK or within the Commonwealth as well, it's hard to see in any way that this is going to be a big moment in these questions about equality, about its role, are going to come to the fore.
4: Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think the Windsor do have strong staying power, but this particular furore will die down. I think there's a huge issue that the label's going to stick, particularly given, you know, as Jasmine's been saying, that the background of the royal family, it's harder for them to get rid of the accusations of racism, but they will undoubtedly make some efforts to try and show that they are not. And there will be a sort of PR battle in the opposite direction. I think Robert's absolutely right. The Prince Andrew scandal has much deeper problems, especially if more comes to light around that story that is the thing that could be truly damaging to the monarchy. These other issues are to some extent an extension of what's already going on. But I think we won't know how much it's going to damage the monarchy until Charles tries to navigate that succession. And we see what he's done because he's been preparing for this for decades. So he's undoubtedly got a plan. The question is whether or not he can navigate these things, whether he can both show himself to be as apolitical as his mother and therefore not sort of damaging the monarchy in that way, but also, as we've been discussing today, show himself sufficiently modern that actually he does have views on these issues because all this discussion about culture wars and so forth, it's difficult to say that the royal family can at this point stay out of that. They've got to kind of demonstrate what they think about these issues. So it's a very tricky balancing act. We won't really know how we feel about it until people see him in the role and start to sort of react to what he does then.
1: And well, Robert, we saw that Prince William, who again, obviously further down the line, is also involved in this question, the future of the monarchy, came out this week and said, you know, we are not a racist family, which went further, I think, than the statement the Queen had put out there. And it's obviously striking because by the time Prince William takes to the throne. These cultural questions, I think, are only going to grow, particularly as Britain's demographics change in the coming decades. I think the fundamental tension here remains between a traditional way of
3: how the royal family has to work and a recognition that it needs to be more in tune with society. I don't believe there's any immediate threat to the future of the monarchy, but I do believe there is deep damage and an awful lot of people believe Meghan's critique of the racism within the royal family. And a lot of people will have believed Harry's critique about its deep unhappiness and what a miserable existence it is. And you look sometimes at Prince William, you think this is a miserable existence and you're completely trapped, as Prince Harry said. And I think somehow they've got to find a way not only to reflect the modernity of society, but also to look less completely miserable in that role They've got to work out how they seem more relevant to the society they will one day reign over.
1: And I think, Jasmine, that's the question really, isn't it? That because it's a very old institution, as you said, very deep ties into British history as well, it always moves by evolution. And you do get these flashpoints. We obviously mentioned Diana is one. Prince Andrew is another. Going further back, the abdication in 1936 was another moment where it very much had to confront the society it was governing and these changes. Do you feel that the institution is capable of doing that? Or do you think that ultimately it is going to really, really struggle with changing society and with norms amongst those younger people you've spoken to this week?
2: I mean, I don't think there's an immediate threat to the monarchy. It's not going anywhere. Polling shows that at the moment, public sympathies still lie with the Queen. She's still a popular figure. I do think you raised an important point about there being a younger generation who are slightly more ambivalent and see the monarchy as out of touch and are questioning what function or use it has. Looking into the long term, whether or not the monarchy will actually be able to keep up with society really depends on its statements and its actions in the coming months. They're going to need to maintain public support. You know, at the moment when they visit a school or give a speech, people turn up to see them. They need that influence. They're going to need to find a way of either speaking up a bit more clearly about some of these sensitive issues, or you know, as Catherine was saying, going on a PR campaign to show that they are still relevant.
1: Robert, Kath and Jasmine, thank you very much. Next week, the government will publish its long-awaited review into Britain's foreign and defence policy. It's known as the Integrate Review within Whitehall because it spans all government departments and aims to take a holistic stance on what role Britain can play in the world after leaving the EU. The document has been repeatedly delayed and is likely to prove controversial. It's expected to have a big focus on digital warfare. The UK's role with China, its general relations in the Indo-Pacific region, but it may also contain further cuts to the size of the British army and not put much detail on what kind of role Britain wants to play in Europe. George Parker, this integrated review is something Boris Johnson commissioned and has been kicking around for quite a long time now. And the idea is that now we've left the EU and are looking at about how to reorientate our foreign policy. This document, which is being led by John Bew, his advisor, inside number 10, will take an overall view of what kind of role Britain can play. But there's much debate about what exactly that's going to be. I mean, this is all
0: part of the uh, attempt to redefine Britain after Brexit. And this review has been dragging on for some time. And there's been a bit of toing and froing inside the operation about the extent to which we focus our attention on our own neighborhood, basically the Atlantic relationship and threat posed by Russia. And to what extent it sort of appeals more to the romantic side of the Brexiteers, the idea of Britain returning to the old imperial days of buccaneering and sailing around the world on warships in the Pacific. And it seems to me that in the end, there's been inevitably a balance. But I think quite a big theme of this will be what has been described as by Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, as the Indo-Pacific tilt. So the idea that the Pacific region is the area with the greatest opportunities for economic growth in the next century or so, probably, and also an area with potentially the greatest risk with the rise of China.
1: Robert, famously, I think one of the themes that will prove controversial, particularly amongst the more traditional minded people in the foreign policy establishment is how much this integrated review is going to focus on the East and not Europe. One of the questions
3: we're going to have to get to grips with when we've got the full document is the extent to which there is the story of this review showing Britain's new place in the world and the reality of this review and how much they differ. So I mean one senior Tory said to me that there is a Europe-shaped hole at the heart of the foreign strategy. Then again, I think the transatlantic relationship is still going to be at the core of it. There's going to be a great deal of effort put into national resilience, making sure that Britain's supply chains and its key infrastructure is safe and is coming from countries that we trust. A lot on digital warfare, cyber warfare, that kind of thing. But then you have this other part of the story, which is we're looking eastwards. Now, in many respects, that's a perfectly sensible point of view, because that is where the future shape of the next century is going to be defined. And Britain, having left a major market, has got to find new ones, though the Pacific Rim is not going to replace the hit from Europe. But there is a move to push ourselves much more forcefully into the Pacific, the application to join the CPTPP trade agreement. We're sending a warship out there for exercises, although that's largely performative. The problem is if we start to believe the rhetoric of being a major force in the region, which we're not going to be, we're not a key player, in the Pacific. And the second thing is the extent to which it brings us into conflict with China. And we have a very contradictory strategy on China, which is on the one hand, increased hostility, an attempt to build resilience, which is all about keeping China out of key infrastructure and to contain China's economic ambitions. And on the other hand, we rely on China for a great deal of things. We want to be open to the Chinese market. So there is also this central tension at the heart of it all
0: you can't have a black and white approach to China because we are dependent on China on a lot of things, whether it's, for example, helping to build our nuclear power stations to the vital role that China will play in tackling climate change. So we can't just sort of say that China's a threat. It all has to be calibrated. I'm hearing that it's quite likely that British judges will pull out of sitting in the Hong Kong bench which will be quite a big signal that we don't have any faith anymore in the judicial system in Hong Kong. In fact, a very big signal indeed. So I think we're going to see a lot of calibration and things like that, but at the same time, still an acceptance that we need to engage with China. And frankly, this is a bit mercantilist, but if we don't, we're seeing what the European Union is doing. They've signed this investment agreement with China. Germany and France in particular see opportunities to develop markets in China. And frankly, if we start to take a different approach – There are other countries in Europe which will start to fill
3: that void. The question that I think is being raised, and this is where it gets difficult, is that the genie has slightly been uncorked. We have a significant force of people in the Conservative Parliamentary Party who now see China as an enemy, not just a problem, but as an enemy, and who fear the made-in-China 2025 strategy, which is all about achieving dominance on the technologies of the future. And then you have this narrative that we are spinning around the Indo-Pacific tilt that we will be a player in, in a force of global liberal rules-based order. And the point is the theme that unifies all the countries that might appeal to is their fear of China and the need to contain China. And so we've got this very difficult issue where we're telling a story that we're part of the forces of the liberal order, while at the same time trying to stay close to China. And it's not an irreconcilable
1: position and George, close to home, I think one of the other tensions in the integrated review is going to be about funding as well, because as the FT has reported, there's a £17 billion black hole in the Ministry of Defence's budget. It did receive a spending boost in the autumn from the Treasury, but there is still this idea that troops are going to be cut.
0: When isn't there a multi-billion pound black hole in the defence budget? It's a perennial. thing think for as long as I've been reporting politics, it's always there. It's a permanent thing. I think in the end, they're going to have to learn to live within their means. And I think actually, you know, the the point about this defence review is focusing on those parts of our military that we actually are good at and specialise in. And they include special forces, which we're brilliant at. And they also include things like the development of cyber technology as well. But the idea that we want to sustain a large standing army why do we need a large standing army? It's not really deployed anywhere in the world at the moment. And it's the kind of army that you can quickly build up quite quickly as well. So I think the Ministry of Defence won't like this. And there'll be lots of fighting within the services as well, because the army will say, well, hang on a sec, you just spent a fortune on these aircraft carriers which seem to have no obvious discernible military purpose. lot of this, I think, still bears the imprint of Dominic Cummings, who was very involved in this before he was thrown out of Downing Street last November. The focus on cyber and drones and all those modern aspects of warfare.
1: And finally, Robert, how does this all play into the vision of what global Britain is? That's always been a slogan in search of a meaning. There are limited choices. Britain is a medium-sized power, and it does have to recalibrate where and what it can do. The narrative is very much about the new world, you know, setting
3: sail like the naval power we once were, and the Prime Minister probably still wishes we were. A lot of the high-level narrative is about the Indo-Pacific tilt. But the fact is, the transatlantic relationship has been the core of British foreign policy. And the US isn't as much looking for the UK to be a player in the Pacific as to be a strong force in Europe and in its own area. So I think that's the question where we will see how this develops. And I think the other point that we will see is this evolving situation of how Britain decides to position itself diplomatically within Europe, aside from its role in NATO. Its approach is very much to not treat with the European Union, but treat with the major capitals and countries of Europe and conduct its diplomacy that way. And it will be interesting to see if that is sustainable because
1: that's where the most definition is still required. Well, George and Robert, thank you both very much for joining. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all your usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And if you liked it, then please do give us the thumbs up or a nice positive review. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. The sound engineer was Breen Turner and the editor, Amy Keane. Until next time, thanks for joining us.